Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, good morning. I can do better than that. Good morning. My name is John Allen. I'm the pastor here at Risen Church. Um, I want to, before we really dive into this thing, I want to highlight that next week is our partner meeting. So here at 5 p.m., we are having a partner meeting at our church. Now, uh, partner is our term for membership, so it means that you officially joined our church as a partner in the gospel. Um, So if you're not yet an official partner with us here at Risen Church, uh, but you consider this your home church, I want to encourage you. Uh, to go online and fill out the partner form. Now, that's different from the Connect card. So there is a Connect card that I want you all also to fill out, but that is something that is basically focused on just making sure you're connected with information, you have information about community groups and serving and that kind of thing. But the partner form is a form that you just fill out online, and it's going to allow us to get to know you a bit better, allow you to get to know us and what we're about a little more, and um, that is how you officially partner with Risen Church. Make sense? Okay. So, um, this morning I want to kick this off with uh, another call and response. We did one last week. I've got another one for you this morning. So, you guys ready? All right. If I say God is good, and you say all the time, that's right. And if I say all the time, then you say All right, so you guys are on it. So if I say God is good, you say all the time. And when I say all the time, you say God is good. All right, here we go. We kind of already did it, didn't we? Um, (laughs) Here we go, though. God is good. And all the time. Let's do that again. God is good. And all the time. God is good. And all the time. Beautiful. We are continuing this morning in our series through the book of Revelation, and we are calling it Victory Unveiled. And so, uh, in case you hadn't noticed, we live in a world where bad things happen a lot. Now, if you hadn't noticed that, that means you're probably five years old. But um, it's a part of this world. It's easy, though, to believe that God is in control and and, and God is good when everything around us goes the way that we want it to, right? But when things get difficult or uncomfortable or, or evil is suddenly just exposed in our faces, that confession that God is good all the time isn't always on the tip of our tongues, right? We live in a world where chaos and destruction and famine, violence, corruption, disease, poverty, and overall tribulation undeniable realities. So praise God for seasons of prosperity, right? They do happen. Many of us live in them right now. But there's a great danger that's laced within those seasons, and that danger is that they can become hypnotic, and they can become deceptive to our hearts and our souls. Those seasons of prosperity and comfort can actually lull us into a false sense of security and trick us into placing our hope in the wrong kingdom. A kingdom whose sole purpose is actually not to prosper you, but to enslave you. And there's nothing new about this. 
In fact, most people are familiar with the story about how God delivered his people from Egypt, right? You've all, many of us have heard the story that God delivered his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. We remember the plagues and, and the parting of the Red Sea and Moses and all that stuff, and we can picture the cartoon coloring books and all that stuff in our heads. But do you know how they became slaves in the first place? Not many people are familiar with that part. The Bible is clear. The reason they became enslaved is because they got comfortable in a kingdom that was not their own. They took their eyes off of the promised land and forgot about the kingdom of God, the kingdom that God had for them, and they settled for a lesser kingdom. And that lesser kingdom ended up enslaving them. So they got there when Joseph, if you're familiar with this story, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, but then Joseph rose from a slave to the right hand of the highest king in the land, or Pharaoh. And the rest of his family then came down because of a famine, trying to escape famine, and they came down into Egypt, and Joseph not only forgave those who betrayed him, but he sheltered them under his rule and reign. And so there's a prophetic picture here in the Old Testament in the story of Joseph of who Jesus is and would be. He was betrayed by his own, given up for the dead, and given up for dead, and he was held captive by a foreign nation, and yet rising from the lowliest state to the right hand of the king of kings. And then forgiving and rescuing those who betrayed him. This is the story of Joseph in Genesis. Genesis ends with God's promised people sojourning in a land that is not their own. They were protected for a time, but their hope was never supposed to be in the kingdom of Egypt. But they got comfortable. Hundreds of years pass. They clearly grew comfortable with where they were. Maybe the whole promised land thing became nothing more than a fairy tale to them. Maybe they thought that's a primitive thing, that's a silly story. We're good where we are, right? Fertile land, people protect us. One day, a new pharaoh decided that they'd grown too numerous, and he saw them as a threat. He ordered them all to be enslaved. See, the great threat to God's people in Egypt wasn't the pharaoh. The real danger was in taking their eyes off the promised land. God's people became enslaved because they got satisfied with a lesser kingdom. They set their hope in a kingdom that was not their own, and they were enslaved by their own comfort. God's people. You see, in the same way that Joseph was a prophetic picture of what Jesus would do for us, the Israelite people were a prophetic picture, which means a, a picture, a, a foretaste, or a prophetic picture of the danger that we now face as we, the church, God's people, live in a kingdom that is not our own. The greatest threat we face as the church does not come from an elected official. Our greatest threat is not from tyranny, it is not from war, it is not from economic upheaval or a pandemic. 
the greatest threat that we face as the church of Jesus Christ today is becoming comfortable with this kingdom and placing our hope in this life and forgetting about the kingdom that is to come. And just like God sent the plagues as part of the delivery process from Egypt, he will also graciously, mercifully allow tribulation to run wild in this world and expose which kingdom we've set our hope in. Because when you set your hope in this world, it will always enslave you. But when you set your hope in the coming kingdom and its coming king, it will always set you free. So my question is, where is your hope this morning? See, when things are good, it's really easy to settle in and get comfortable. It's easy to set your heart and your hope on the things of this world, even good things like prosperity and health and peace and freedom. But in this world, all that's just a glimpse and a glimmer of what you were created for. Like, praise God for prosperity and health and peace and freedom, right? We should pray for those things. You should pray for those things. And you should fight for those things in this life. They are good, righteous, holy, godly things. But you should never set your hope on those things in this life. We can never let those things distract us from the kingdom that is to come. They're just a shadow that should, that should call our attention to the true heavenly substance. When difficulty and trouble and tribulation rears its wicked face in this life, be not troubled, for our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in this kingdom. It's in the next. When difficulty and trouble and tribulation come, realize there is a better world, there is a greater kingdom, and there is a greater king. And it makes even the best parts of this life pale in comparison. That's hope. It awakens all the goodness of this life into abundance and transcendent color and majesty. And it's a kingdom that calls to the depths of who you were created to be. It calls it forth. It calls it out. And it redeems you in order to set that loose even in this world. That's what hope in the coming king and kingdom do for you and for us. And so when this world falls short, when the injustice and tribulation and trouble of this world is exposed and its foundations are shaken into chaos, don't lose hope and don't lose heart. We remember our hope was never in this kingdom. Our hope is in the king who has overcome the world. John 16, Jesus promised that in this life we will have tribulation. Say tribulation. Never heard that one declared in victory before, have you? But that's a promise. He says, in this life, you will have tribulation. It's a promise from Jesus Christ. But Jesus also said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Over the past few months, we've been going through the book of Revelation. We've been invited into the eternal throne room of heaven to let the majesty of the risen Lord and the one that's seated upon the throne room captivated, captivate and illuminate and invigorate our lives to cry out for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we've been looking at for the past few months, honestly. Last week, we looked at uh, chapter 5, and we saw God Almighty on the throne, and he was holding a scroll 
sealed with seven seals. That's the vision that we were given last week. We talked about how this scroll represents the progression of all redemptive history and how this, in this vision, nobody was able to break the seals and open the scroll and how John, the man that's, who's, who's receiving this revelation, fell into deep despair and he's weeping because no one was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And so it's important to catch that whatever that scroll represents is the only hope for all of creation. It's extremely important to understand and remember what this scroll is. You see, when nobody was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll, John begins to weep loudly, bitterly. There's a desperation. We talked about this last week. As he stood before the throne of glory, he knew how wretched and hopeless our world was. And then he's told to weep no more, to behold the Lion of Judah who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. This was his consolation. This was his hope. So go back online, check that sermon out. There's your recap. We're going to keep rolling. Because what happens here is now the big question is, what's in the scroll? So the, the, this is Jesus. He's worthy to do it. So he approaches the throne. And we're about to find out what's in this scroll that is the symbol of hope and deliverance and rescue and redemption. That's kind of exciting, right? It's like an eternal drum roll right now, okay? So what's in it? There are seven seals on this scroll. So if you can imagine a scroll is rolled up, and it's sealed together with a wax seal. If you've ever seen that stuff, it's like a seal, and, and the, the, the ring and the imprint, it's the king's seal, and the only person that can open it are the people that are worthy. And, and, and so each seal, right, in order to open the document, you'd have to break the seal, and then there are seven seals. So it's almost like seven chapters in a sense, okay? And so um, this morning, we've come to Revelation chapter 6, where the seals of this scroll of hope are finally broken, and the contents are unveiled. And so we get a peek, or we get a, a, a revelation of what's inside. And in the first four seals, what is unveiled and released are what have become known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> now, I don't know about what your opinion has been previously of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but most people don't necessarily think of the four horsemen of the apocalypse as a picture of hope. <laughs> but that's exactly how Revelation presents them to God's people. And then... The fifth seal reveals the souls of Christians who have been killed for their faith. And they're crying out to God for justice. Again, not exactly images that you'd expect from a scroll that's supposed to bring deliverance and hope. But that's exactly what we're going to see. So a quick roadmap for the rest of our time this morning. I want to quickly read through this passage. And I want to spend a little time presenting a quick framework to help us understand this amazing, supernatural, powerful, prophetic revelation a bit better as a whole. Okay? So that you can read it on your own even, especially, and understand what's going on. And then we're going to drop back and we're going to try to get through these first five seals. 
All right? You with me? Here's the main thing I want you to get. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. I've already said it. When you set your hope in this world, it will always enslave you. But when you set your hope in the coming kingdom and its coming king, it will always set you free. When you set your hope in this world, it will always enslave you. But when you set your hope in the coming kingdom and its coming king, it will always set you free. So, you guys ready? Let's do this. Jesus, the Lamb of God, he's about to open the seven seals. Revelation chapter 6, starting with verse 1. I'm just going to read through it. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked. And behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Okay. Got it? It's easy enough, right? (laughs) So there's a reason why you don't hear many sermons on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's not just because it's confusing or mysterious, either. It doesn't get preached very often because people think it's irrelevant. Fairly recently, it's become popular to view chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation as a description of events that won't happen until after God has removed his people from the earth in a distant future. That's a very popular opinion. I've heard so many people say things like, why do I need to read it if I'm not going to be there for it? But that is clearly not how the early church would have received a revelation. And it's not how we should receive it either. In fact, we know that this letter was specifically addressed to seven local churches in the first century A.D. We actually walked through specific addresses from Jesus to those particular churches. 
They were real people. They were facing real tribulation and in desperate need of a real revelation of their very real and true Savior and King. And this letter was written to them specifically as an encouragement to endure what they were facing then and about to face in coming. And not something that would happen thousands of years later because it was an encouragement designed for them then in the now, if that makes sense. To conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and to love not their lives even unto death. This is not a letter describing something that they would be removed from, but a tribulation that they would be delivered through. It's a revelation of the unveiled victory they had even in the midst of tribulation. This is why he writes to them. John even introduces himself in chapter 1, verse 9, and I have it for you on the screen, as your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's how he starts his letter. So we know that Revelation is one of, if not the most quoted book of the Bible by persecuted Christians throughout history. So I want you to realize that the revelation that we're receiving here in this chapter and going forward isn't just about a future tribulation that we're going to be removed from. Yes, there are definitely elements in here that are about the future, even about a future that is to come for us now here, thousands of years in the future, or roughly 2,000. But what we're seeing here in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 20 are events that describe the common experience of history from the first coming of Jesus Christ until his return. In other words, we're going to see the church age characterized and described from heaven's perspective. That's cool. I think that's cool. So what could be more relevant for his people today than to read and receive and understand this revelation? So I want to spend a little time here to help you grasp the form and structure of revelation so we can receive and understand what's in it. Okay? So bear with me here. This might get a little teachy. All right? So again, starting here in chapter 6, we're going to be viewing the common events of history from around the first century until the return of Christ, whenever that might be. No, I do not know when that will happen. That's not what this is about. Jesus says nobody knows. So if anybody has a pastor or you come against somebody and they're like, I know, I figured it out. He's coming. In. They're wrong. All right? And you should leave that scenario. Um, but we'll be seeing... We'll be seeing this from multiple different heavenly vantage points. That's what's getting ready to take place. In other words, each section of the coming chapters will focus on different aspects or time frames of this period. So we might get a highlight in one area in chapter 6 of that time frame, and then it's going to drop back and give us a more detailed look at the prequel to chapter 6 in chapter 7. Okay? Confused yet? Hold on. Then, in chapter 8, it circles back around to what we saw in chapter 6, and it gives an account of the entire thing from a different vantage point with different details. The official term for this is called recapitulation. Think recap, okay? 
Each time it recapitulates, it gives us a deeper and more full revelation of this period between Christ's resurrection and his return. And it draws from and it builds upon several images that are similar that were given hundreds of years before this in the Old Testament prophets like Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. I've heard it said that while Americans like to rhyme words, the ancient Hebrews like to rhyme word pictures or metaphors. And the result is this magnificent, eternally relevant, prophetic masterpiece. You might say it's like an apocalyptic rap song, but instead of words, we get visions. Right? So, so in case you missed that, recapitulation is like a recap rap about the church and the end of the world. Got it? <laughs> you guys are like, what? Are you talking about rap? I don't know what's going on. Well, it gets better. <laughs> so, again, to help you really understand this, it's kind of like the movie Crash. You guys ever seen that movie, Crash, or maybe Pulp Fiction? Anybody? What are you doing watching that movie? Sinners? Just kidding. Or, or maybe Love Actually, which, but, <laughs> but in these movies, right, it follows multiple storylines that are happening simultaneously. Right? In part of the film, it focuses on one set of characters, and then it suddenly drops back to another set of characters in another scenario, but ultimately all the characters end up crashing into each other as the overarching plot is revealed in the end, and sometimes it's presented up front with the end being revealed from the beginning. See that? And when the details are presented to us from multiple vantage points and perspectives, they draw us in as though we are experiencing them for ourselves not just through the eyes of one particular person, but as though we're in it. Another example, just because this can get a little confusing, all right? Football. Think about watching a football game. The best way to watch a football game is to be there, right? Hands down. To experience a football game, the best thing is to be at the football game. To experience it yourself. There's no substitute. But the next best thing is to watch it on TV, especially the way they do it now, right? And the way that it's presented on television is by presenting the game from multiple different vantage points and even non-literally, or sorry, non-linearly. It's a hard word to say. Linearly. Linearly. There we go. Got it out. Linearly. So one minute you're seeing the game from above, the next minute, you're watching it from the sidelines, right? And then you're hearing the crowds. You're, you're, you're hearing the crowds cheer. You're, you're, you're hearing the band playing. And then it drops back, and it does a replay of the last play. And then it takes time to hone in on a particular player, and it tells you where he's from, maybe, maybe what kind of injuries he's dealing with, what, what his plays looked like last week. You might even get a video of the previous game and, and previous plays. And, and it, it kind of swirls around, and, and it gives you this full and comprehensive insight, and it all provides this, the most revelatory experience that you can have of the game itself next to being there. That is a lot like what we see in Revelation. You follow me? So now you might say, then why does John say things like, after this, or, or then I saw, or after these things, or then I saw this? Sometimes that gets confusing, and you think it's all linear, Right? But what we see here is that uh, 
John is articulating the events as they happen in his vision, not the events as they occur in history. It's important to understand. He's telling us about the vision that he is seeing as he's seeing it. Right? So I saw this, and then I saw this. So in other words, he's, he's just telling us the order in which he received the visions, not the order in which those visions will happen on the earth. So here in chapter 6, we begin the first round, okay? So don't get confused. Like if you were watching a football game and then suddenly they did a replay, you'd be like, I thought they just scored. Why are they scoring again? It's to help you understand more, okay? And so here in chapter 6, we begin the first round. So let's drop back and look at what's being revealed in these five seals. When the first four seals are broken and the first uh, sections of this scroll are unveiled, we see four horsemen unleashed to ride across the earth. They're given authority and permission to wage war and destruction upon the earth. One represents economic disaster, and still another represents mass-scale disease. And they're all unleashed and allowed to kill a fourth of the earth with mass-scale war, famine, pestilence, and natural disaster. And these four horsemen are actually referenced a lot in the Old Testament. Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 14, Zechariah chapter 1, and Zechariah chapter 6 all reference similar images of similar agents of God's wrath and judgment upon the earth. They represent God's power and strength to unleash upon the earth exactly what it deserves. Like horses that are kind of pawing at the gate with God's wrath ready to just be unleashed and ride. And here in Revelation 6, we see that they are indeed unleashed as God's judgment upon the earth. And they aren't sent from Satan. They are designed to bring the world to repentance. They are designed to punish those who do not repent. And they are designed to purify the faith of God's people. I'm going to show you that. All right, so let's drop back. Revelation 6, verse 1, verse 1 and 2, the first seal, right? So now, again, so now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the, first, one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And so this horseman has been interpreted to represent many different things. Some have said that this is Jesus. Some have said that this is a picture of the church advancing with the gospel upon the earth. And the reason many think this is because he's riding a white horse, right? Sounds like Revelation 19. He also has a crown, which also sounds like Revelation 19, which is, we know, a picture of Jesus riding a white horse and wearing a crown. But the crown this horseman's wearing is not a crown of sovereignty. It's a crown that's actually more like a wreath. That's a crown that's given to, like, the winner of an Olympic race. Okay? He's a conqueror. That's what you got when you conquered in the Greek world especially. And so he also carries a bow, not a sword, like Jesus does in Revelation 19, which we know is the sword of the word of God. Okay, this guy here has a bow, which always in scripture represents military might. And so this would have brought to mind a, a group called the Parthians, 
which were a group of warrior archers who lived on the border of Rome on the east, who symbolized political and military unrest that eventually always led to constant warring. They were a a people who Rome was never able to quite conquer because they dropped back and they were very advanced in their military capacities of the time. And so the white horse, though, represents a satanic parody or imitation of Jesus. And some even believe that this is a picture of the Antichrist. So either way, what we see here is authority given to militant political leaders to disrupt and destabilize, which then leads to war, represented by the red horseman, which leads to famine and economic upheaval, represented by the black horseman, which leads to epidemic disease, represented by the pale horseman. Again, we've seen this type of scenario play itself out over and over and over again. It is a common theme throughout history. Revelation 6, second seal. Revelation, so of course we're in Revelation. Verse 3. <laughs> Verse 3 through 4, second seal. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now, this may refer to war, but also persecution of believers. To slay, to slaughter is the word there. And then the third seal. When he opened the third seal, verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. So this rider is carrying a pair of scales in his hands, okay? And so those scales would have been used to both ration food during an extremely difficult time. If you can imagine, like you only get this much barley, you only get this much wheat, right? Because there's a famine happening. And they would have also been the means of measuring exchange rates. In other words, there is extreme inflation happening during this, or or represented by this black horse, And so John even hears what seems to be a voice saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now again, part of understanding Revelation is he's not just seeing things, it's a revelation that he gets deep in his own essence. He is experiencing this, so he sees it, he smells it, he hears it, he feels it. Does that make sense? And so here we see that that he's hearing this voice. And you can imagine the wheat on one side of the scales and the denarius on the other side of the scales. And so wheat and barley were seen as the essentials for human life. And so here they're presented to us as 8 to 16 times the average value in the Roman Empire at that time. And so some have suggested the command not to harm the oil and the wine is a picture of God's grace on a local scale, since olive trees and grape vineyards would have been local crops. Now, there may be something to that, but I think there's also a social implication here that gets articulated not long after this letter was written in 92 AD. Famine did hit the Roman Empire, and the emperor Domitian ordered olive orchards and vineyards to be cut down to make room for wheat fields and barley fields. That makes sense. That's a good move on a leader's part, right? To keep the inflation rates down, 
to make sure people are fed. But what we know from 92 AD is that the upper class demanded their luxuries, like oil and wine. And they caused such an uproar that the emperor rescinded the order, allowing inflation to soar so the rich could continue their lifestyle. And so again, this is a theme that we've seen throughout the ages. No matter how bad things get, there are always those who continue in their luxury. Again, this is all a part of God's judgment that's being released upon the earth. It is exposing hearts. Verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades, or Hell, followed with him. So the fourth horse is pale. But the Greek here is actually chloros, where we get, like, chlorophyll from. And so it would have been more like a pale green, which is the same color as a corpse. So this is a picture of plague or disease. And they were given authority. So in referencing all of them, they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. That's a lot. To kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So here's a summary right here of all four horsemen who've been given authority to run roughshod across the earth. Now, a fourth of the earth is a lot, right? It's a big portion. If a fourth of the earth were suddenly destroyed, I think we'd all be like, whoa. Right? Like even CNN's wildest projections of COVID-19 aren't reaching those numbers. Okay? But this never says that this is all from one single destructive event. In fact, it's clear that this death count is the result of everything from war, famine, and disease to natural disasters. If you were able to calculate all the deaths that occur as a result of all those things, it's not hard to imagine that it would be a pretty big portion of the world's total population. So this is the world that we live in. Like, think about this. This is a picture of the world that we've been in for centuries. War, famine, pestilence. They've been running rampant throughout the earth for centuries on a massive scale. Just because we don't experience them up front doesn't mean that it's not being experienced in North Korea. It doesn't mean that it's not happening in India or Indonesia. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, verses 6 through 8, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So like a woman giving birth who goes through contractions, that's what the end times will be like before the promised son is delivered to us. We will be delivered from all our tribulation when that happens. But so, so what we see here is that suddenly all the difficulties, suddenly we're going through contractions, and it's just intense, and it's, well, it, it's not comfortable. I've never given birth. I've watched it happen three times. Doesn't seem like a great time. Right? So you go through these contractions, but then they dissipate, and there's a time of relief. But then they hit again. And then there's a time of relief. And then they hit again. 
and again and again, right? Until suddenly, the mother holds the promised son in her arms, and all the tears and the struggle are more than worth it. Romans 8, verse 18 through 22 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Remember, we just looked at the seven specific churches that John's writing to in the Roman province of Asia Minor. Many of them were still recovering from a very recent devastating series of earthquakes. This would have been very fresh to them. When a mother holds her promised son in her arms, though, all the tears and all the struggle are more than worth it. But when the promised son, Jesus Christ, returns, he will be the one holding us in his arms and wiping away all of our tears. If you need a little more evidence here, just look at the amount of tyranny, cruelty, and unnecessary death just in the past 100 years. Hitler, Nazi Germany, they put to death more than 6 million Jewish people, men, women, and children. Mao Zedong in China killed tens of millions of people. Pol Pot slaughtered more than 2 million people in Cambodia. Stalin killed more than 20 million of his own people. Some say it's closer to 30 million. All in one century of tyranny and war. Just one century. 41 million people from all over the world were killed in World War I. More than 60 million people were killed in World War II. More than 1.3 million people died in Vietnam. How could we even comprehend all that's happened in the entire since the entire world since the first century until now? Those numbers don't even include what I just told you. They don't even include the American Civil War, which estimates are now that 750,000 people would have been killed. That's an entire generation in America. I read that there have been more than 3,168 major conflicts on the earth since 1870, between 1870 and 2001. 3,168 major conflicts. And what about the amount of death from pestilence and famine? I got these stats here from 1692 to 1694. 2.8 million people starved to death in France. That was 15% of the whole population. In 1695, a fifth of the population in Estonia died from famine. And in 1696, one-third of the population in Finland starved to death. The bubonic plague began in the 1330s, and estimates say that it wiped out upwards of 200 million people. That's more than a quarter of the entire population of Europe and Asia combined at that time. 
In England, four out of ten people died. In Florence, Italy, they had a population of 100,000 people, and 50,000 people were killed by the bubonic plague. That's half the population. When the Spanish arrived in Mexico in March of 1520, Mexico had a population, a population of 22 million people. Eight months later, only 14 million were still alive. That means 8 million Mexicans were killed by smallpox in eight months. Over the next 60 years, the population in Mexico would drop to less than 2 million in total. In January of 1918, the Spanish flu struck soldiers in the trenches of northern France. Within a few months, they say about half a billion people were infected. Half a b -b -b billion Estimates of the death toll from the Spanish flu range from 50 to 100 million people. AIDS has killed more than 32 million people worldwide since the 1980s. And I neither need to nor want to address the fallout that's surrounding COVID-19. I'm honestly not even sure which category to put it in, right? Is it disease? Is it economic? Is it militant, political? I have no idea. Probably all of the above. The real question becomes, though, in all of this, what then for Christians? How then are we to live in a world like this? Remember, this is part of the victory being unveiled. You hear these stats. Do not get hopeless. Remember, these are the seals that John was weeping loudly for someone to be worthy enough to break open and unleash. Don't lose the context here. These horsemen are unleashed and permitted to run by Jesus Christ himself. Now that John sees it, do you think he's like, oh, wait, no, never mind. Put him back in. Put the seal back together, like put up that note, you know. No, not at all. What we're seeing is the spiritual depiction of a world being torn apart by its own sinfulness and depravity. This is the logical outworking of a depraved generation who has rejected and rebelled against its true king. It's a defiant kingdom and rebellion. It's experiencing small doses of its true state of chaos and reaping what it has sown. These four horsemen represent God's judgment. So in fact, the reality that only one-fourth are killed is actually a sign of God's merciful restraint on the earth. What we're seeing when these horses run is God giving a sinful world over to its own depravity, as Romans 1 talks about. So what about the church? What about Christians? We experience the fallout of tyranny, war, famine, pestilence, and the groanings even of the natural world too, right? We get caught up in it. 